Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on breaking the status quo of failed solutions and to get to the core of the supply chain of deadly fentanyl. Learn more about FAF by visiting familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a mental conversation. Mental as in mental health. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. My emergency department is a mental health and substance poisoning receiving center. We proudly hold that official title, if there was such a thing, but there isn't yet. Regardless of our official unofficial title, police and ambulance professionals bring us patients who are at their worst crisis. Our emergency department staff includes not just doctors and nurses, but mental health specialists, case managers, social workers, substance use disorder, nurse specialists, and substance use navigators. We do all we can to defuse a crisis, but I know it's not enough. It remains a societal problem, and our hospital remains a revolving door for many patients. The National Survey on Drug Use and Health, NISDA, publishes an annual survey report. One slide shows an intersection of substance disorder, SUD, and any mental illness, AMI. The big circle shows 57.8, nearly 60 million Americans, adults, who have any mental illness. And the smaller circle shows 44 million adults who have a substance disorder. What interests me is the intersection. 44%, almost half of everyone with a substance disorder, has a mental illness. And in people with an underlying mental illness, about a third also have a substance use disorder. The overlap is huge. It tells me that we can't treat one without consideration of the other. Mental health and substance use disorder can be intertwined. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, my name is Patty, and I've had the pleasure of working with Dr. Love here for many years in a very busy emergency room downtown. Our emergency department sees many patients who have mental health crisis and drug issues. Several years ago, in order to accomplish the patient demand, we converted our small chest pain center to a locked emergency behavioral unit we call the F-Pod. 
It is always full and insufficient for the volume we need. Patients in crisis sadly stay in our regular emergency room bed for many days because there are insufficient community psychiatric beds. My question is, what are some solutions to treating the overlap of substance use disorder and mental health disorders? Thank you, Patty, for being a very diligent, professional, and caring psychiatric liaison to our patients in the emergency department, helping our community, and also for your very thoughtful question. To answer, I invited Eric Greminger. Eric is a CEO and co-founder of ERP Health. He is a nationally recognized leader in the behavioral health space. He trains behavioral health professionals around the country on how to use patient-reported outcome measures to personalize clinical curriculums. Eric promotes drug prevention and recovery and is part of the Advisory Council for National Fentanyl Awareness Day. To learn more about Eric Greminger and ERP Health, check out the High Truth show notes. Eric Greminger, welcome to High Truths. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Eric, I realize that uh, we have a lot of different people in common um, that brings us together for a future um, great podcast ahead. And uh, But I want our audience to get to know you a bit. Tell us about yourself, your journey, and what brings you to the world of mental health and substance use solutions. Sure. So um, so what, what brought me here was my experience. Um, 2005, I had an injury, was prescribed painkillers. Um, that kicked off a five-year addiction that absolutely devastated my life, but not just my life, also the life of my family, friends, coworkers, you name it. It, it was impacting everybody. Can I ask you as a, as a doctor what your injury was? Sure. It was a knee injury. I was playing basketball and it was pretty, you know, it wasn't a major injury, believe it or not. But Did you need you know, surgery or anything like that? As a doctor, no, it wouldn't have needed surgery. But again, we're going back to 2005. So right. seeing it through that lens, it was... So you went to the ER and they gave you 30 pills? Yeah, right. And uh, and that that started and, and Oxycontin was plentiful during that time. I wasn't prescribed Oxycontin, but I realized oh, there might be something better out there. And that the progressive nature of addiction kind of led me down a path to ultimately 80 milligram Oxycontin, needing multiple of those a day. And um, did you get those from doctors? Did they keep like? No, I didn't get the the 80 milligram. I, I was getting consistent Percocets um, from the doctors. And then ultimately, dependency takes place. You know, and that wasn't enough. And, um, and then there were other factors that had nothing to do with pain. Of at that point, I think it was satisfying uh, emotional things I had going on. And uh, there was a whole kind of biopsychosocial, you know, uh, impact that it was, it was providing for me in my life. And I just felt like I needed more and more and more. And then, um, of course, the vicious spiral, I would. But the medical say, community enabled your addiction. I, yeah, yes. Created your addiction. Right. In in hindsight, I, that was definitely the catalyst yeah. for the addiction. And then um, and then the nature of addiction where I would do these were getting very expensive. The habit was very expensive. I was doing things that I wasn't proud of to get to need to get more. That was creating uh, shame to cover up the shame. I needed to get high more. 
which you know would lead me to do more shameful behaviors and some you know that that's a very vicious cycle it's very difficult to break um but thinking back if you had an injury to your knee in uh 2023 and you came to the emergency department and we said yeah you sprained your knee it doesn't need surgery it's going to hurt for a few days try some toilenol motrin and some ice do you think you would have gotten into that vicious cycle or you, you would still have had the emotional issues you had to deal with, but at least we wouldn't have added, you know, an addiction I component. I definitely would not have. And yeah. I could I could point to hundreds of examples of people within my my circle, like right. who I know who went through that same exact thing around the same years. And I don't think it's coincidental when you look at some of the Purdue Pharma cases going on and what these reps were telling doctors and what's you yeah. know now in hindsight i mean you could you could read the books you could it starts to make sense but we didn't know that i was just a what 26 year old kid who was playing some pickup basketball and hurt his knee and right. i trust you all right you know, well that's right and in 2005 we were pushed to do that and i'm happy to say that i think we've come full circle now and would give you Tylenol Motrin in an ice pack. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I think it's grown leaps and bounds. And I wonder sometimes, because I've had people, you know, now I work on the behavioral health side, but I'm, you know, working towards an integration with physical health. So I'm, you know, a, a lot more educated than I was. Uh, and I guess this would be a question for you. Is there a case where we're overcompensating, where somebody might need something, but for instance, in my health system, uh, University of Pennsylvania, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in headquartered in Philadelphia, there's a a limit. Like it, it's with a system wide where if you're trying to prescribe, it might, uh, I think it lets you know you can't prescribe this amount. Right. They they put some stop gaps. And I think that that's important, yeah. right? And, and those are important. There's always exceptions to the rules, but that's how it should be. It should be exceptions. It's not like, yeah. oh, everybody could go up to 240 equivalents of opiates. No, that's strange. There should be a stop somewhere at 100. Are there people who may need more and legitimately need that? Yeah, but that, that needs to be an exception. I um, think it, it's done a lot to prevent gaming the system and where people would come and try to get more pills. Because at least if there's a stop gap, you're able to ask the questions, the important right. questions. That's right. And not, not be, just prescribe. Right. We were, at the time we were working with the automatic electronic health records of how many pills should be the maximum because you'd be in the ER and you're writing prescription and it used to be uh, the greatest thing we did is we got Kaiser to change there it used to be automatic 30 pills everybody got 30 pills it's like well, why does everybody need 30 pills so we got them to change it um, you know we wanted to change it to zero to make the doctor think every time because if it's zero you have to think but I think we got it them to do 20 or we got it less but to answer your question about have we gone too far, at some point, at the beginning, we went too far because I sadly talked to people whose loved one committed suicide when they were cut off from their pain pills. They said, you know, I'm being treated like a drug addict. I'm not a drug addict. I just have pain, and now I can't get my pain medications, and it, it, it sent them to the end. And I talked to several people like that. That's going too far. You can't just cut someone off. You got to taper. You have to do something. That's that's not right. Um, are we? I don't know. 
I think we're somewhere near the middle because I have it both sides. I, I still have people now coming to the ER knowing that they're, you know, needing paid medications of uh, uh, people calling 911 and getting fentanyl from the paramedics 50 times. That's somebody who has a problem, right? So we didn't completely get rid of that. But my entire emergency department is not full of people there for pain. And it was uh, back then. So. Yeah, I think it does come, uh, you know, there's always going to be outliers, but this person-centered approach, patient-centric approach, everybody is an N of one at the end of the day, and we have to do our best to kind of treat them. So Patty is a psychiatric liaison in our emergency department. Um, uh, Our emergency department, we're busy uh, downtown San Diego. Uh, with the trifecta of homelessness, substance use disorder, mental health, are I would say about half of our ER is is that. Um, and uh, Patty works with our people who have a mental health crisis. And her question that I'm posing to you is, what are some of the solutions in treating the overlap of substance use disorder and mental health disorders? Well, I think Id- identification is the the first step you know there, there's nuance behind it and that's where our technology really tries to play a role being a an infrastructure where an individual can come in let's say to an emergency emergency room setting and have a way to screen for mental health conditions through this technology um, identify alcohol issues depression, anxiety, are there tra- is there a trauma history there? But then have a way, and this is the really important part, to stay in touch with them. So if they're going from the emergency room and then maybe, you know, hopefully there's a, a way where we could do a warm handoff to a practitioner, perhaps outside of this, where they could work with them, having a way where they could continue to identify whether or not they're progressing and, and their symptoms are reducing. I think that's a big thing. And it's, I guess I would be interested in this conversation. You would come to the emergency room. Okay, there are different stages of recovery, whether that's mental health or uh, substance use disorder. The first, your phase, it's crisis. Let's put out the fire, right? Stabilization phase. We can get a baseline there or a general sense of what percentage of people come in here, have depression, have anxiety, have different types of disorders. That data could be very helpful for your organization, perhaps in allocating resources to make sure the appropriate um, you know, resources are available at that level. I'm interested in where do they go next, right? Because I don't want them coming back to your emergency room over and over again. Mm-hmm. Like you all do amazing work. We are a revolving door, though. I know that's the most fr- that's the probably uh, one of the more frustrating frustrating parts of the job, I would imagine. And you're humans at the end of the day. And yeah. I've heard terms like compassion fatigue and things like this. And I don't know wh- how I feel about it, but at the end of the day, you're a human being. And if you're treating somebody, they're going out, and then you're treating them again two days later. Well. It's, I don't know if compassion fatigue, but also it means that you failed in your job. So every day that happens, I failed in what I'm supposed to be doing, not to my personal fault, because I'm just not in control. I can't help. I mean, that happens every shift, right? I had this lady last night, I was working last night, a few hours ago, she 
obviously, uh, high on meth. She also had some trauma. I was trying to get her an x-ray um, because she had one yesterday, but she was too out of it to get the x-ray. Um, so she came again, and I thought, okay, I'm going to try better. I'm going to give her food and be extra sweet and give her socks. And maybe then I could at least get an x-ray if she broke her hand. Um, and she just took off. So I each time... It's like a personal failure, and, and maybe it's not compassion fatigue, but you're also upset with yourself. Right. And then I would kind of reframe that if I were working with you and a professional. Yeah. So I'm a counselor, but I immediately go into counseling and say, you know, you actually, you know, I think did your job, but where do they go next? Is the failure of the system, right. right? And what sort of community resources need to be available you know, where we could direct these individuals to with late stage, you know, addiction issues. I mean, it sounds like who you're dealing with is really, we need to kind of have a crisis center specific to meet their needs and orient them. That's the place to go because that's what you're, you're really needs to be addressed because this person doesn't have the wherewithal to actually take your intervention recommendations into, you know, and yeah. truly put them into perspective because you taking that as a failure increases burnout potential, right? Which is in a system. So I would view it more as a system failure. And I think innov an innovative mindset could help with that from the perspective of what community resources do we have available, you know, that we could create an infrastructure. Like obviously ER is always going to be an important component to the health system, but our, a mental health substance use crisis center specific for that that's or you know built structurally built around that with the resources to say you're addicted to methamphetamine and if you really you know want one help we could offer you that help you know but if if you don't here's a you know a way for you to stay in touch with us and you're the source of change i'm a resource for your change yeah but what we try to do is just measure each interaction and see, are they progressing even the tiniest bit? Every little bit of information is good information. Did they show up one less week you know, than before? Is there anything I can do from an outreach perspective? What about peer specialists? A very affordable way. And we part of our technology is we work with a peer specialist company to continue to measure things like, you know, are you just keeping up with your, your hygiene, nutrition, things that would be variables or indicators of um, success. So all, all these ideas you're mentioning are part of ERP health that you work with. Tell us a, a little bit, what is ERP health? Yeah, that might, that might be helpful to start with. Um, so ERP health is an enterprise-grade outcome tracking platform that leverages the power of technology to personalize patient care, promote health equity, and improve population health. So we're designed to be an infrastructure where somebody comes into the health system, we're able to take a, a baseline measure. Right now they're presenting with severe depression, mild anxiety, you know, substance use disorder, and alcohol use disorder. And then wherever they go from there, we're continuing to assess them. So it's patient-reported outcome measures. And we could do that through a phone or a tablet directly at the treatment center 
or you know med medical facility. But the important thing is we're trying to engage them in their own treatment process and say, you're the agent of change in your life. You have an active role in your recovery. We need you to take these assessments. You know, you were you were in, um, in a trainer before you came a counselor, right? Yes. So I yes. see that analogy, right? You're trying to create, uh, okay, look at this. Your weight is like this and your body mass and you've created it's some amazing. muscles and the analogy that. Because I, the reason it this made so much sense to me, and I created this program in 2014 in pen and paper format. And before that, yeah, I was a personal trainer and and they they talk about measurement based care as if it's this novel idea and i'm like this is just common sense to me because somebody would come to me and they would say hey i want to lose 10 pounds right and i would do a quick family background any injuries that would prevent us from success yeah. and then i would say please step on the scale right. and i would write down your baseline number and we'd put together a plan cardio a little weight training we'd get to work after a few weeks you would, they would come back in and I say, please step on the scale. And whatever that number told me, if it went up or stayed the same, I would be able to ask very good questions like, have you been able to get to the gym? What's your nutrition like? Right. And then that would inform how I modify the, the exercise plan right. to get us on our goal to reach 10, 10 right. to lose 10 pounds. And the person could do it themselves too. Completely. And and that, I think that's the importance of having an infrastructure or a I, I think you should call this a mental health trainer instead of, you mental know, personal trainer. trainer. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm a mental health trainer. That sounds cool. Right? That, that sounds <laughs> super cool. And I think the platform, because we have to, you know, keep in mind, there's this balance where I want to acknowledge and, and make people feel comfortable, especially in the in the behavioral health profession where we're starting to integrate with medical health. Historically, there haven't been standards of care. This is scientifically sound. I mean, yeah. this the, the body of literature around measurement-based care, patient-reported outcome measures, um, you know, in personal agency is very strong. But we also like, it's novel to a certain degree as well. So so ERP is, it's a, what you offer is a technology base that, that integrates with hospitals, clinics, doctor's offices, and, and patients input? Yeah, well, I'm trying to get to that point where it's integrating with, with the medical profession. Primarily, our customer base would be payer organizations that's, that uh, have a behavioral health network that wanna have a level of management over their network and identify whom is performing well, whom is performing not well, objectively. So like Aetna, Blue Cross, Kaiser. Right, yeah, organizations like this. It's very empowering to them because we're at a point where you're paying for something, but you don't know if it's good or bad, objectively. Yeah. Like it's very anecdotal in the behavioral health space. And I'm not, I mean, medical, obviously we have, biometrics and it's, it's very clear if somebody's a1c is improving their a1c is improving we have in our field psychometrically validated scales and screeners that you know have been proven to be valid and reliable across a range of academic and scientific can you give settings. us examples of that so yeah, right the most common that yeah. you would be aware of phq9 gad7 
Um, well, tell us what that is. We don't know what that means. Uh, okay, so PHQ-9 is a depression screener, okay. very commonly used. And again, the main thing about these assessments is they they have to meet a certain criteria of validity and reliability to be universally accepted. These have met those criteria. And it's there's a lot of rigor that goes into the science, but the point is they're trustworthy. So you could come in, it's a brief survey, nine questions. You take these nine questions and it's an indicator of whether you have very low depression, mild depre or mild, moderate, severe depression. Okay, that's very good to screen at the beginning. I'll use an example of a substance use addiction treatment center. So you send a loved one to an addiction treatment center to get specialty care. There's sometimes a 90% comorbidity rate between depression and anxiety or a depression and substance use disorder. We'll call it opioid use disorder. It was in my case. So I, I went to two treatment centers, completed a 28-day treatment center. They cleaned me up, right? Got the drugs out of my system. But the problem was I also had depression. So about 90 days after treatment, my depression would activate. I conditioned myself to self-medicate with painkillers, and then I was right back to square one. So we have to learn to treat these things concurrently, and you can't treat them unless you could identify them. So our system specializes in that. And then this is where it's really powerful, and this is where the innovative measurement-based care technologies are so valuable in the evolution of this field. I could then, from that baseline, Say so you had severe depression. So when you say value-based technologies, do you mean that screening tool? Measurement-based technology. Okay. So measurement-based care. Are you familiar with that term? Uh, no. I'm, I'm familiar when the government tells me as a clinician, you need to report all these value-based measurements. And then I get dinged because I ordered a CAT scan without clicking the right boxes, even though the patient ended up with a neck fracture and I get yeah. uh, punished for it. Um. Yeah, <laughs> two different things, although relevant, related. So we have value-based care, which is more of a, a kind of a reimbursement methodology, and then measurement-based care, which is a way to identify, and this is especially important in behavioral health, because remember, we don't have any true objective way to know if what I'm doing is working. Right. So, you know, we need that to a certain degree. So these screeners, PHQ-9 depression scale, you had severe depression, you come to me as a therapist, and in a, a specialty care addiction treatment center, typically there's groups in residential care. There's some groups and there's an individual session where you're going to meet with me once a week. I'm going to do some form of CBT, DBT, whatever it might be, but I'm going to recommend that you do some things before the next time we meet. Then the following week, I'm going to measure your depression levels again. And that indicator is going to tell me in real time, instantaneously appear on my dashboard if the depression went down, just like my personal training days, is your yeah. weight going down? Are you improving or not improving? And it's going to enable me to ask two very important questions. Why did the depression go up? What can I do to get it down? Why is this person in preparation stage of change? 
what can I do to get them into the action stage of change? So it's a very nimble care model, providing real-time data with the technology, enabling me to ask questions to you as an N of one patient-centered approach. We throw these terms around, but it's very difficult to do with pen and paper. Mm -hmm. Technology streamlines that, but then week over week, identify that, extrapolate that out from a population health level. And as a payer, you could see, you send your members to care. I have a thousand members that went across this provider network. I could see significant drops in depression, anxiety, cravings in this center, not so much this center. I could break it down by age, demographic type. We talk a lot about health equity, very important. We need to identify culturally appropriate recovery resources, but it's impossible to do that without data to identify, oh, this treatment center does really well with African-American females age 18 to 35. This one, not so much. So that can inform member care as far as where I may recommend this person goes. And I think that is where the value of having this, this platform comes into play. Yeah. What are some of the measurements that you use for substance use disorder? You mentioned cravings. What are the, what are the indicators used for that? It's a, so it's a craving scale where you would frequency intensity of cravings for primary drug of choice. Um, of course, medical management can be worked into it. If you're on an MAT, protocol. We want to know when you leave the treatment center, are you adhering to that protocol? So are you showing up to your appointments? If you answer no on the health screen, it gets sent right back to the treatment center. So an outreach can be done. I believe this could save lives. If I know early that, that you're not adhering to the recommendation, same with psychiatric medications. Um, it's not talked about nearly enough. It's the comorbidity rate between addiction and we can't say it's success if we've just cleaned somebody up quote cleaned somebody up off of their alcohol issues or or whatever it is we have to identify the root of those issues identifying ACE scores is really important social determinants of health if somebody's going back to a community like you work in um, are there resources available that would enable them to succeed you know, are there are there transportation concerns where I'm I'm assuming that you have a ride to this outpatient recommendation. I'm assuming that you have uh, the nutritional resources within a 30 mile radius of where you live and the financial resources to buy those to manage your you know condition. Or is or drug screen be. part of it also? Drug screens. Yeah, we use a, a drug screen called the DAS10 and the audit, but this is where I'm really excited. And we're, we're in early days with this. And ironically enough, I, I had a primary care, uh, I, had, I had a physical this morning. So I was at my primary care doctor and this is how, how it goes. Did you pass your test, Eric? <laughs> I do really well, I tell you, try to take care of myself. Um, so interesting, so we were kind of talking about that. So you just went to the doctor. I see a future where the doctor would say, okay, yeah, Eric, you know, your blood sugar is good. Your blood pressure, your vital signs are good. Um, uh, like Senator Patrick Kennedy says, check up from the neck up. How's your depression and how's your recovery? Did your, yeah. did your, did your doctor touch all three points, physical, no. mental, and, and addiction? You know, 
No, he did not. And I yeah. love that checkup from the neck up. And thank you for saying that because this is this is how it goes. And this is how it is mostly now. Although they're pushing for this integration of physical and behavioral health, I think it's more or less buzzwords right now. Yeah. But if I would have went to the doctor, we have the tablet there. I could have taken a screen, PHQ2. So there's, you know, there's a way to just do a quick screener. And if something's noticed, you'll do a more robust battery of assessments. But I'll go, they take my blood pressure, I hop on the scale, and then I sit there literally for 10 minutes and do nothing. I'm on my ESPN app catching up on the latest scores. I could be taking an assessment right there that would notify them and then screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment. These expert models, SAMHSA has proved, you know, significant savings in the healthcare system. Yeah. And they pay. There, There's a CPT code for the doctor to get paid for doing that. Yes. Yeah. So we're pushing, but I had the opportunity to meet with him and he's amazing. Dr. Uh, Dr. Steven Stoll. He's, he's been my primary for years and he's, he does a fantastic job. So shout out to him. But I mentioned it to him. I was like, hey, you know, I'd love to talk to you about this. And he's like, absolutely. So I think people are open. I think it's about an education process showing how easy it is. Uh, we have an API that integrates with the medical records. That's very important to practitioners because it sounds like more work. It's not, right. <laughs> yeah, but right, right. That's the first thing. It's like, are you kidding me? Do you know how many yeah. things I already have to screen for? You're going to give me more things, right? But it's them. It's the patient. So it's always about the patient. If we talk about individualized care, which we do often, you have to include the individual. Like it can't be, and that that is happening on its own. That's just kind of a byproduct of the times we live in. Um, you know, the, the democratizing of healthcare. I mean, I have an aura ring. I know how well I slept last night. I have an Apple watch. I know my heart rate at most times during the day. Like I am informed much right. more so than 20 years ago. It's like, whatever you told me, that's it. That's the only bit of information I know. That seven minute visit with my primary that I get twice a year. That's what I know about my health. Not the case anymore. I expect to have an active role in my in my care, and I think that's a good place to be, but it's always going to be a combination, like you went to school for years, you're informed, I could tell just based on our conversations so far, you're somebody I would trust, the information that I got from you would inform the way that I live my life, because I trust that, but I think it's a combination if we include them and say, you have an active role in this care, especially in, in uh, mental health uh, settings, where it's long-term, it's chronic disease we're gonna talk about, not acute care, where I'm gonna bandage you and this is you know, probably gonna be the, the path towards healing. It's like, no, this is a very complex condition. There are gonna be ups, there's gonna be downs, there are stages of recovery within 90 days of addiction treatment, post-treatment, you're very vulnerable to relapse. And there are psychosocial factors that contribute to that. So, this, but every most people have a phone. You know, like most people have a phone. So if I could come to you and then we have a whole positive reinforcement behavioral science. So what, what, take us take us through like an uh, ideal way of using this. I, I'm thinking, I don't know, the emergency department may not be uh, the, the not place right to now. start it, right? It, it's too chaotic. People are n not even able to get to a phone and click to things uh, in, a, in a real 
uh, if they're, you know, in horrible withdrawals or if they're in, you know, way intoxicated or like the patient that I mentioned, they won't be able to do an app. But let's say the next step after the crisis has anticipated, um, a, a person enters the system and take us through that. I'm going to give you my magic wand. This is if it goes exactly how I okay. dreams. Yeah, it the gold standard. Day. This is the gold standard. Okay. So somebody like me goes to their primary care physician for a routine routine checkup. They're presented with an ERP health tablet. It's identified that they're drinking five or more drinks a day, right? They didn't know that was a problem. That's what all their friends do. It was, you know. Post-pandemic, I got into the habit, started drinking at noon, whatever it might be. The doctor gets notified of that and says, hmm, that's not healthy behavior. Um, would you be open to speaking with a specialist, you know, going, going to a, a treatment center and, and helping you to get this under control? Patient agrees. Yes. All right. Because we have this infrastructure of providers, we could identify based on their demographic information. So this is a male, he's 23 years old, Caucasian. I could go to my database. Who offers the best care for this person? We find the, the provider. Or have the computer do that for me so I don't even have to do that. Computer does it. Yeah, it's, it yeah. could just automate it. But from that screening, there's yeah. a brief intervention and then a referral to treatment. Now we're at the treatment center, all right? Specialty treatment center. I specialize in treating alcohol use disorder which this person has met cri di diagnostic criteria for, per the DSM-5. Okay, great. I take a baseline. What are your current cravings for alcohol now? How's your depression uh, levels? Any trauma, you know, PTSD symptoms to take into consideration here, anxiety levels. So that's the baseline. Now you're going to go through my 28-day residential treatment center, and I'm going to continue to do these assessments every two weeks. And I'm gonna factor in the treatments that you're being offered, including your therapist, like the, the demographic of your therapist. Is this the therapeutic alliance there? I can measure all of these things. Mm -hmm. And then week over week until your 28 day discharge, I'm able to see and modify the care that I'm offering to get you on the right track. So, wow, I see significant, you don't, you're not craving alcohol like you once were. Your depression has gone down. It seems like your neurochemistry is starting to find homeostasis and everything on a professional side that I would want to see, but also conditioning the person to say, you, you have an active role in this. See, when you take these assessments, it helps me to do my job better. I'm going to need you to continue to do that as you reintegrate back into your home life and, and to work life and family life. And that's 12, a 12 month model is where the technology is really built to go. Does does the patient then, okay, you, um, you know, the patient has to be, has a severe enough disease to go to a treatment facility, right? Not everybody needs yeah. to go to a treatment facility. And then yeah. are they assessing, okay, now do your score once a week, and then that sends an alert if you go up or down? Yeah, it would send an alert depending on the severity of it, but or it'll just populate when the therapist meets with, meets with that person one-on-one. -on -one. It works just as well in an outpatient setting. I'm just giving you an example of a, you know, extreme case, they would need residential and then they're stepping down to let's say outpatient, but they're continuing to take this assessment in the same exact way they were from day one. So we talk a lot about interoperability. 
And the assessment for um, substance use disorder, besides craving, um, is it just saying, yes, I'm using, how much like, how much alcohol have I used? Have I used yeah. meth? Have I used marijuana? Yes, right. Now, the, the obviously, the ultimate goal is to get them to a point of 12 months where they no longer meet diagnostic criteria for either substance use disorder or alcohol use disorder. So in our world, per the recovery research, that would be sustained remission. So we have very clear targets that we're going for. And then five years would be remission. Um, so that's, as a clinician, what I'm aiming for. Now, I have to build out the architecture that would enable me to identify your progression up until that point. So when we built this technology, we started with the end in mind and say, this is a chronic relapsing brain condition, right? Brain disease. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we know you're not going to treat it in 28 days. You're not like, that's not, that's not how this works. So let's take a step back and see 12 months is here. What sort of things do we need to know about this person to get them to successfully reach that point? And what sort of, uh, whether that's peer support, whether that's case management, whatever it might be, what sort of information would they need to know early preventing a lapse from turning into a full-blown relapse and potentially an overdose death? MAT compliance, psychiatric medication compliance, continuing to monitor depression levels, stress levels, anxiety levels, precursors to return to use, spikes in this. That's an indicator to me. I want to do an outreach to this person. So they would get alerts for that. Um, and then social determinants of health. What sort of resources do you have available to you? How's your family life? Family life's really bad right now. I don't have any supportive friend. I want to know that, right? I want to know that and intervene early and keep you out of your emergency room, you know, and this is a, a powerful way to do that on the behavioral side, but they absolutely go together because somebody has a panic attack because they, they, they could have managed their anxiety if I knew early, but instead the anxiety continues to rise and rise. And learn, they, learn other ways of dealing with anxiety without going to drugs. Marijuana. Without going to drugs, without going uh -huh. to marijuana, without it progressing to where you're thinking you have a heart attack and you go take up your valuable time, because I think I'm having a heart attack and really you're having a panic attack, which would have been very manageable had I known early that this was rising. And again, these aren't, this is not anecdotal. These are trusted screeners that are used in clinical trials around the country. <laughs> like, so I, I like pointing that out as well like this is a scientifically sound approach to where, managing chronic conditions where would i see this now as a provider and as a patient is it are you in i see your uh philadelphia pittsburgh sign back there is it just east coast are you nationwide no we're nationwide um we're from portland oregon to florida to you know, philadelphia area all the way out to to California, but our, and this is the vertical that we started in was addiction treatment. Why? Because of me, because I wanted to help people who struggle with addiction. The only reason this platform exists, now I started it in pen and paper format yeah. where I would go to treatment centers locally here in Philadelphia and I would say, 
this would be really helpful if you used it. And they would engage the patients with pen and paper assessments at the time. <laughs> the clinicians would collect them, fax them to me. I would research the findings, put together a statistical analysis by hand of where the community needed the most help, send the results back to the therapist to integrate into care to ensure progress for the patients. That three-phase system, engage, research, progress, that's what ERP stands for. So that's the acronym of ERP Health. Nice. And then I met my partner and he has a technology background. And he's like, I see your passion for helping people. If you do this by hand, maybe you could help hundreds of people. If we turn this into a technology, we could help millions of people around the country. And that led to mental health and addiction. And now we're working uh, on contracts with schools. I think this could be really good for youth mental health, semester by semester screenings, acting as a heuristic. Is this at what, what age group? Uh, I would say I'm going for middle school and high school right now. And don't quote me on this. We're not there yet. Very early days um, with, with some local Philadelphia schools where it would be high school kids. So uh, 9, 10, 11, 12 here on the East Coast. I don't know if that's the same universal, yeah. but that age range where just, hey, take this health screen, basic questions and get them to identify, hey, you have a test coming up and you're, you're anxious. That's okay, that's normal, but you can see the connection. Now let's talk about it and let me teach you at that age to self-regulate not just when it's a crisis. So I wait until it's a complete crisis. I think you should start in, in middle school. We Again, I'm-, I'm The younger, the better. Middle school, I'm, I just think it's such an important time in our country to promote this. I, I think it's, it's uh, I, I just love your idea, Eric, because you're, you're talking my language as far as- um, dealing and ending with the problem. So in, in your case with the prescription uh, opioid overdose, that's how I got involved because I was uh, getting people addicted with good intentions, right? Because that's what I was taught to do. And I made it a point to reverse that for for um, my profession. Um, and I, I saw it as we have two populations one population who are in, like, they had a bucket, literally a bucket of medications. And I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do with this? I, I'm not going to fix this. I need to keep you alive. And then I thought, you know what? The next person with a knee injury, you know, we, we need to train a new generation of Americans not to be addicted to prescription opioids in the first place. And I think we accomplished that. But that was the methodology by keeping one set of group of patients alive and the other one prevention, primary prevention in the first place. And if we did that as a whole for all substance use disorders, we would have less substance use disorder, less of a prevalence in our country. Unfortunately, I see our country giving mixed messages, you know, about alcohol, about marijuana, about drugs. But if I, ideally, people who have a substance use disorder would be managed and we would do what you're saying in middle school, young age, teaching uh, kids to acknowledge um, their anxieties, depression, whatever is going them, and give, giving them tools to deal without without going to drugs, and 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 protecting, teaching them to protect their brain until you're 25 years old. It's still growing, right? You want to be strong and build muscle and be tall. You want that for your brain as well till you're 25 years old, and and any 
tools that implement that at a young age um, is awesome. Yeah, and, and thank you for the work that you're doing. I think it's really you know important to you know have credible doctors really take a stand on over prescribing. And I think uh, the work that you've done has been successful. Like I, I could see it in my own health system, but in, in Philadelphia, our, our very own Ben Franklin has a great quote that I like. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And yep. that's the way I view working with the, the youth and um, yeah, these critical periods in brain development. I mean, why aren't we talking about that more? It's it teach them that like, look, your brain's developing. There's phases right now. You can learn languages. There's all this amazing opportunity. Yeah, don't, very don't cool. Put right? good things in your neuronal pathways. Take advantage of that. It's a superpower. And right. I think we should talk about that more. Too. All right. And, and, and you only have so many neurons your whole life. You don't get new ones. You can't, yeah. you know, you could grow new muscle. You can't get new neurons. Um, so that's, that's, that's really amazing. So um, it, the technology is interesting. Uh, Thinking about weight um, and getting on the scale, a few years ago I did an uh, an app uh, called Noom. I think it's very popular. It's kind of a, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for losing weight, right? Yeah. And I'm wondering. I don't know if this is really what your company does, but I could see a cognitive behavioral therapy app for for substance use disorder. Yeah, absolutely. And there and there's a few out there. It's, I don't see us being that. I really want us kind of to, to be that infrastructure through which novel ideas like that can connect to mm -hmm. and, and just but building it out 12 months and beyond so in a true chronic care model mm -hmm. and then being able to identify progress throughout um i tr i really believe health equity is important i think it's i think there are just cultural differences that may make certain providers better to, you know, for certain patients. And I think if we could show that and connect uh, th those individuals to the right uh, care, that will improve outcomes. And ultimately, I think all of this, actually, I know all of this, when used in the way that I, I hope that it will be used, will reduce healthcare costs. You know, mm -hmm. with this debt crisis we're dealing with, I mean, what, 20% of the GDP comes from healthcare costs. But the health isn't, there's not a commensurate improvement in health. No, we spend a lot of money, but we're not the healthiest. <laughs> it's not sustainable. And I think that's because we we don't have our finger on the pulse of what's happening. And a, a data infrastructure like this could really help. And I think it could reduce burnout. We have a, a treatment center here in Pennsylvania using our system to do better supervision sessions. And they actually presented at a symposium using our data on how he uses it for supervision with his therapist. And that reduces burnout because he's, he's helping them, uh, you know, to, to grow personally and professionally. And I think that's really important. Yeah. And who pays for the system? Is it the health plans? Is it the providers? It's providers. So depending on who, now in, in the case of the health plan, that would be our customer because they would want to use it for their provider network. But we do have a model where we would just go right to the individual providers and um, and work with them directly. So um, insurance systems, but also health systems, you know, yeah. like right. the Those Kaisers. are two primary customers. Yeah. Interesting. That's very cool.
So um, we have some friends in common. Uh, uh, Director Carroll, you were just hanging out with him, my previous boss. Uh, what? Tell us what you were doing. Yeah. So uh, you know, Jim Carroll's a, a great advocate and uh, and ally in. Uh, helping to bring awareness for our platform and how it could be used to improve outcomes. Um, and specifically, we were recently in Palm Beach County, um, where they're, they're also doing really great work. The, the drugs are down there is doing really great work to bring awareness to the fentanyl crisis and, uh, and talk about some prevention opportunities there. So Jim and I were on a panel discussion together, and it was a uh, a very productive, solution-focused, outcomes-focused discussion. All right. What are the out What are the solutions for fentanyl? Well, I, it's oh, it starts with awareness, and then of course the conversation always comes to supply and demand. Um, on the on the supply side, that's outside of my scope of practice. <laughs> you know, that's more of the policymakers figuring that out. But on the demand side, it's getting people proper treatment. If somebody gets their hand up and says. You know, I'm struggling. I know that there's these uh, synthetic fentanyl, uh, fake counterfeit pills out there, and and one pill can kill. Um, I want to stop. I don't want to use anymore. We need to make sure they're getting personalized care, like they're truly getting a care process that's measured, that's moving the needle forward, and we right. could objectively say whether or not that's working. And then offer them a resource like I just described to help them reintegrate back into the system. And again, uh, the role that Jim has played in getting the message out has been profound. I mean, he's yeah. been a true partner and advocate. Um, and, you know, during his time. Because he cares. He has the biggest heart. He, he, he's the most authentic and genuine yeah. Uh, person who who really believes in that, and to be at that at that shout level, out to Jim Carroll, prior uh, drugs are, but Eric, I wonder if I can nudge you um, that when when you're talking about demand and you talk about people who want help need to be able to get it, there's a lot of talk and a lot of money on that. There's less so on the prevention. Your 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 friend uh, Benjamin Franklin, yeah. and I would just put in the same sentence that you know, just like the two populations, this is how we did it with opioids. It's how we did it with tobacco. We manage the people who have a problem, but we stopped the pipeline. If we don't stop the pipeline, and that means talking about mental health like you are. It also means about talking about marijuana. I, I put in the word marijuana when we talk about fentanyl because I haven't met a single person who didn't end up either dying or overdosing on fentanyl that didn't start priming their brain at a very young age with marijuana. Yeah. So I, I stick I, that in there as well. <laughs> I agree. We, we were having a conversation actually about this, Jim and I, yesterday over, uh, over dinner. And it was, so I, I sit on the board of an organization called Prevention Plus, uh, New Jersey, right, right over the river here close by in New Jersey. And we talk to middle school kids about this topic and hopefully prevent them from, from doing it. A few years ago, and I've done this for years, a few years ago, legalization of marijuana in New Jersey. Well, you don't realize it, but that sends a message. We That's tend cool. to equate legalization with it must be healthy. Now, I try to combat that with my message now to say, 
from a biological standpoint, the law doesn't matter. Like this will impact these critical periods in your proper brain development. You're introducing a depressant to your central nervous system. That's going to disrupt your development, but it doesn't help you know, when the state comes in and says, this is now legal recreational use, you know, legal across the, uh, the board and, and then medicinal use it subconsciously, you just, you don't realize medicinal it. use. Medicinal. Yeah. Yes. And, and with I, a, and in quotations, with air quotes, because if you if something was a medicine, it would be you'd get a, you know physical exam and vital signs and drug interactions and all the things that I need to do to prescribe you buprenorphine or to prescribe you amoxicillin doesn't happen when people say, "Oh, here's your medicine." And I believe I'll, I'll trust you on that. Like I don't, I'm not educated enough to speak yeah. on that, but I could tell you without a shadow of a doubt, when it comes to preventing, you know, these prevention efforts, yeah. it's not helpful to have the legalization as widespread as it is because it's it gives a different message. It actually negates the message. But I I, I think we can deal with that. I I I don't think as a country we're spending enough money on that. Right. Um. That that if we really want to stop the pipeline. I mean, we're, we're putting a lot of money, billions of dollars on treatment and harm reduction. Of course, that's important. But, yeah. we're, but we're not stopping the pipeline. And if we wanted to do that, it's not about legalization or decriminalization. We'll all agree on that. It's about educating at a very young level um, to deal with life challenges and to avoid drugs. Tobacco is legal also. But we were able to t teach people that that's not healthy, Right. We actually put a stigma on cigarettes, right? And then we can have a discussion about that as well. We all, you know, there's a whole national campaign about stigma. Don't stigmatize the human being. Of course not. We're all humans. We have our, you know, good parts and our bad parts. And, you know, and we have a health challenge. We want to help you with that, with compassion, without stigma. But I don't think that means taking the stigma away from drugs, the drugs themselves, because then we just perpetuate the pipeline. I, I would vote yes to deploying more <laughs> resources towards the youth. I think it's a great strategy. I think we need to make it equitable resources. Um, I think we need to give these kids a compelling vision for the future, something to be excited about. So it's not just about not using, it's about what you can do you know, yeah. as a result of not using. And I would be 100% so yes to that effort. You see yourselves being in schools and having a little, kids can take a little self-assessment at a young age and continue it, you know, throughout school, um, just like they do for physical education, right? We see, hey, how many, uh, yeah. how fast can you run a mile? And, and how many, you know, pull-ups can you do to get that presidential? Uh, called a wellness check-in. Yeah. And it's just wellness. It's not mental or it's just it's overall. It's a holistic perspective. Yeah. But if as much as much emphasis as we put on physical health, we have to start putting on mental wellness. And I think teaching them that age, conditioning them to identify exacerbations and symptoms, which in most cases are going to be quite normal. But if you, you have these school counselors for a reason, they're not crisis counselors, they're counselors. And if I could identify some stuff earlier with data in a confidential setting like what well, you talk about you could you know this is not going to get out to everybody but if you're dealing with some heavy stuff like maybe there's something going on at home there was a divorce and you're 
internalizing that. Well, we know now that's just a recipe. It's going to come out at some point. So if we could have productive, safe conversations, enable you to be vulnerable, kind of address some of these things early, we could prevent- Give you tools. Right. Give you tools to deal with that, right? That's right. And those tools will be lifelong tools. Because remember, they're learning things right now that will go with them forever. And now's a time when they could actually be conditioned with some habits that will be hard to break. You know, so we could give them good habits, just like the bad habits that get established because we're not paying attention. If we could be more deliberate, we could introduce into the brain some habit loops that will be conducive to a healthy, happy lifestyle. And then, of course, that will lead to a healthy, happy world. And that's what I want. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And there there are uh, studies. We've, I've done a podcast with uh, uh, people who do blueprints who look at these types of interventions in a randomized control trial and show that these interventions at a young age pay off dividends downstream in mental health and substance use disorder, in violence and academic achievement um, by putting that investment. So I applaud you for, for that effort. And um, and it's beautiful that it comes from your personal experience um, in making the world a better place. I love that. Um, Fentanyl Awareness Day. You mentioned that you are on the, is it a national? It, uh, it's national. It, yep. May 9th. So it's coming up. Um, yeah. And we, you know, we're past two years we've done it. This will be the second year that we've done it. And uh, part of the advisory council and uh, some really Highly educated, compassionate uh, individuals who who donate their time and um, and, and try to be, bring awareness to this you know horrific epidemic. How do you how do you commemorate? What's the best way to commemorate? Although every day these days is Fentanyl Day, so but yeah, you could go to Fentanyl Awareness Day. Uh, the organization who started it is called Song for Charlie. Um, Out of California. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we had so, him on the podcast, Ed. Yeah, amazing, amazing man, uh, turning pain into purpose. And um, actually, Jim put me in touch with him. So that's how I ended up on this advisory council a few years ago. And, you know, in addition to preparing for this day, and and they put on, you know, there's a there's a whole list of different educational events scheduled for that day. Um, we have an uh, expert fentanyl panel that we've been kind of working on a little breakout group to put out information regarding misinformation about fentanyl, which is an abundance of that, and kind of what people can do to um, be informed. And it's ever changing. That's the thing when, you you know, it's, yeah, of course, we need Narcan. Narcan should be in every first aid kit. Hopefully it will be soon. Done a good job there. Um, But what else? What's next? Now we got Trink. Like now we got, it's just always. Well, there's always something new, right? Always something new. So what can we do to get to the root of it? What's the driver of this? And like, we'll go back to your prevention. Right. Go upstream, going upstream to, to do that. But you, you got to do both. Pediatricians, you know, working with them two out of every, and actually learned this from Dr. Scott Hadland, who's a a pediatrician, uh, I think head of pediatrics at Harvard uh, medical school. So very educated, knowledgeable on this topic. He pointed out that two out of every five uh, youths that have fatal fentanyl, uh, fatal overdoses, 
had a mental health condition. So what if we could identify that mental health condition early and treat it? Would it have led to drug use? Who knows, but let's put the protocols in place anyway. Like let's set it up where it's just standard teaching these kids at that level. I think the school's more impactful right yeah. now, but why not have it at every level of medicine? Yeah, so the the pediatricians follow these um, guidelines. And years ago, I wrote, and, and part of it was accepted to their guidelines, kind of like uh, when kids are crawling, teach uh, parents to lock up the cabinets, right? So I, I said when p- kids, before they go to middle school, they should be screened about, you know, pills around at, at your house, lock them up at your house and grandma's house and, you know, and, and screen um, about uh, mental health issues. And also, while you're getting a family history about cancer and diabetes, include a family history for um, substance use disorder as well. Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, it's great that we're having this conversation. It needs to be like now. I mean, this is a major problem. 110,000 overdose deaths. Um, I don't think those numbers tell a real story because of that, and I, I don't know what it is now, I think it was 110,000, times that by four, because these people have mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, and guess what? Their lives get completely changed, and they become, I'm going to dedicate my life, oftentimes, to raising awareness for fentanyl. So the... the it's, right, and, it's, and death is a tip of the iceberg. For every person who dies... Yeah. There's many more who are uh, are, are have a substance use disorder and are suffering, right? So- and taking up emergency rooms and costing like the the system so much money. So we need to make this top priority mandates policy around it. So I'm hoping we get there. I'm a I'm an optimist by nature. I mean, I've seen some change. Is it another? Well, we fixed one problem, then we create a bigger one, right? We we've kind of fixed the opioid prescription problem. And uh, now we have a, you know, now we have a bigger, worse fentanyl problem. Um, I'd like to inject something for Fentanyl Awareness Day, uh, if you're able to get that through, is fentanyl testing in hospital settings. We, um, It's a, a bill I wrote for California. It's passed in California, Maryland. Maybe you want to bring it over to Pennsylvania. But if we're uh, testing for PCP and uh, marijuana and cocaine and methamphetamine, the package of the drug screen should automatically include fentanyl. It's, it costs 75 cents a reagent, so there's no money excuse. Um, health plans don't have a problem with it. There's an educational gap in just getting that test um, for the labs and the hospitals. And when you know something, I mean, your whole company is about data, right? So when you know, when you know something, you can intervene. If you don't know about it, then you can't. I love that. And you push that bill through? Yep. Yep, yep. That's, I a, that's a huge deal. Yeah, so excited about that. that. I'll learn more about that. I might reach out via email to learn a little, get some more details about it. But that's incredible. And I agree, that should be uh, omnipresent. So in California, the bill passed. And so now every hospital in the state, um, if they do a drug screen for whatever reason, we're not telling people to do drug screening. So this is not mandatory drug screening. It's still between the doctor and the patient. But if you're going to do a drug screen in the hospital setting, it will include fentanyl. And that happened um, starting January 2023. Maryland just passed the same bill. They took our language and they actually made it better because they made the data go to the state opioid commission. So they'd be used to track. Yeah. 
So that's great. Well, Eric, thank you so much. Well, how what an inspirational story um, you have in in your personal journey and making that um, really to make our whole healthcare system and make America better, healthier, mentally and physically. So I, I really I, I love that. I want to say thank you to Patty um, for your question as well as for your treatment and compassion for our emergency patients who are at the peak of crisis. Um, too much to be able to I think even hold an iPad and, and make an assessment that you know we really have you know the extreme um, population and uh, and happy to be able to do that. We, people always say we we want people to prevent them from coming to the emergency department because they don't have a problem in the first place. But we'll always be there as a safety net for society, no matter what um, problem society throws to us. We're like the canary in the coal mine. And thank you, Eric. Um, thank you work. for having me on and thank you for the for the work that you do. It's really important work. Great. Thank you. And shout out to all our friends, Jim Carroll, Rocky Heron, um, that kind of put us together here. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign the petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Make drug dealers think twice and three times before peddling killer drugs. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.